Welcome to the Manuscript Academy podcast, brought to you by a writer and an agent who both believe that education is key. The beauty is the people you meet along the way, and that community makes all the difference. Here at the Manuscript Academy, you can learn the skills, make the connections, and have access to experts all from home. I'm Julie Kingsley. And I'm Jessica Zinsheimer. Put down your pens, pause your word counts, and enjoy. We are here today with Juno Dawson. Thank you so much for joining us, Juno. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure. We are so excited to talk to you about your new project, Her Majesty's Royal Coven. Before we even get started, would you read to us from your first page? Oh my gosh, I can, because I have the American edition right yeah. here. Uh, Very good. Just, just arrived this morning, strangely. So just a little snippet from the top. Please. Yes. 25 years earlier, the night before the summer solstice, five girls hid in a tree. The shack, much too nice to call a shack, was sturdy enough, cradled in the arthritic branches of a 300-year-old oak. Below, in Vance Hall, preparations for tomorrow's festivities were finalised. It was more an excuse for the grown-ups to fetch up the dusty wines from the cellar two days in a row than it was a planning meeting. Their elders, quite some way past tipsy, truthfully had noticed the girls were absent. Up in the tree, the youngest of the girl, Leonie, was upset because the eldest, Helena, said she couldn't marry Stephen Gately from Boyzone. I'm not play, Leo said. A congregation of candles burned in the treehouse window, wax trickling off the ledge into lumpy stalactite. Skittish amber light danced up the walls, casting campfire shadows across Leonie's face. Why does Elle always get to first? Elle's bottom lip quivered. A baby blue eyes filling with tears. Again, that was why Al always got to pick first. There you go, just a little taste. We talk a lot about first pages of the Manuscript Academy and how they welcome us into a project. And I really felt that was a perfect welcome into these girls and these characters that have this huge life in front of them. Absolutely. I feel like normally when you're looking at books you don't really see a lot of prologues around anymore it's normally like straight to the beginning so when I saw there was one and I was reading it I was like oh I'm here I love them already I just wanted to like dive into the treehouse too it gave me lots of witchy vibes I loved it yeah I agree it's manipulative introducing you to the character's children because immediately you're sympathetic towards young characters. It's a very Stephen Moffat. It's obviously I'm a big Doctor mm-hmm. Who fan. Stephen Moffat often introduces adult characters as children. It's a very quick way to get you on side. My previous novels were YA. It was almost quite ceremonial for me as well, which was almost casting off mm-hmm. young adult, like one last time mm-hmm. of writing adolescent girls. And then we joined them 25 years later when they're adults it was about setting the mood and again I wanted to give a sense of personal history to the characters as well so that when we do meet them as adults it feels like you already know them that was what I was trying to pull off can you tell us your inspiration so I started working on this novel properly in the first lockdown of 2020 the original little teeny tiny seedling came around in 2017 2018 I was touring one of my YA novels in Australia 
and I was suffering from horrific jet lag, obviously, and wide awake in a hotel bed. And I just thought, how cool would like desperate housewives, but witches be? And I got out of bed and I started making some notes. I knew immediately that I wanted to set it in Hebden Bridge, which is a real place near to where I grew up in West Yorkshire, the United Kingdom. And I thought those kind of archetypes of womanhood were always there. And that one of them was a housewife. One of them was bereaved. One of them was a rebellious, kind of brassy, fiercely independent, but quite insecure. And then one of them was going to be refined and aloof and slightly arrogant. So that was always the way. And then from then, it sat on my hard drive for two years. It didn't go anywhere. And then lockdown came. I was supposed to be writing a YA thriller. My editor was expecting a YA thriller. <laughs> and it just was not happening. I was just not feeling it. And of course, I recognize now I was supremely anxious. Like, who wasn't? We all thought we were going to die. And right. um, then my husband said, and I was really struggling because I don't really write from home. I never write from home, but I was stuck. And he was like, look, we don't know how long are we going to be shut in you know, what do you want to write? If you could write anything in the world, forget about your editor, forget about your book deal. What would you want to write? And I was like, I want to write The Spice Girl, but they're witches. And I realized I'd already started that two mm -hmm. years ago in Australia. And so I went back to those characters. And the thing that blew it wide open was, and what would this coven do if a trans child became a witch? And from that what if, he just threw the whole novel forward. And as well, thinking more and more about the covenant itself as well. And I realized there was a whole world and a whole history that I could build. And that was really enticing. And if nothing else with this novel, I think you can really see that I was having the best time. And it really did. I wrote the book from April 2020 to October 2020. And it got me through that horrible first part of COVID. So I'll be forever grateful to it. Oh, wow. You know, it's so interesting, too, that as we go into COVID lockdown, like creating a magical world where there's power. <laughs> and I think there was a lot of writers kind of like, wow, if I had power to fix things, it would be so much easier. I want to dive in a little bit more. It's so interesting. I always cold read everything before I research author because I really want like a clear comprehension of my own take on it. So what was interesting to me, I didn't realize it was a trilogy, but there's so many storylines and characters to organize. I was nervous for you. I was like, oh my gosh, how did this writer do that? And then once I realized it was a trilogy, it made total sense to me why you did that. And I'm wondering what it takes to write something like this. Do you know the end? Do you have everything mapped out? Because it felt that way. It felt like there was enough meat for this project to go for a long time. So tell us about that process. I'm a firm believer in the old Philip Pullman adage of you must never start a story if you don't know how it ends, because otherwise the story could run away and go mad. So I knew roughly this sort of one, two, three structure. I'm a big fan in any sort of sequence or series or trilogy that you say the one with the, you know, and... Obviously, she who will not be named will not be named. But I was quite like that there was the one with the time travel, the one with the tournament, because it kept them sort of separate in your head rather than one meandering story. It's definitely in three parts and each of them very much has its own character, its own kind of vibe. I knew what happened at the end of book one. I always knew what was going to happen at the end of book two. 
And I know ultimately what happens at the end of book three, but there's a lot of loose ends. I write for television as well. And it was a script editor at the CW Network who first told me, when are we going to turn these cards? And I've used that phrase since when planning my novels, which is at what point do you turn the card? When do we reveal that the character is transgender? When do we reveal what really happened with Neve and her twin sister? And I've used that phrase since. I don't want the reader to get bored. I want to keep turning cards. That's so satisfying to me as a reader because I'm also a screenwriting teacher. And I was like, well, I could see this on screen. I could see this on screen. And I definitely felt that vibe, like the visual media of your book was very strong. And so it's fascinating how one job affects another job and how all of that ends up in your work and everything does go together. And I really felt that in your book. It was lovely. As a kid, I'd always felt that a book was like a little VHS tape, showing my age there, a little VHS <laughs> tape for your brain, that it was like, instead of putting a film on, you were putting a book on. And I would sit back and I would watch the film in my head, you know, and to my mind, that is what makes a reader. And it was really interesting. My sister has never been a reader and she wasn't a reader when we were kids. And I remember saying, you know, do you not see these images in your head? And she was like, no. And I was always quite sad about it, really. It, it felt like this gift that you could do for free, like a telepathy between the author and the reader. And when I'm doing that magic, when I'm trying to telepathically send my story into your brain, I want it to be a visual experience. And so that's something I've always really tried to achieve with my novels. And then with my screenwriting as well, we need a middleman to literally turn it into pictures. <laughs> Yeah, I definitely saw all of the magic happening in my brain. And I love it when a story is able to convey that. I also feel sad for people who do read and don't actually picture it. The fact that some authors write and they don't see it in their minds as they're writing it blows my mind. So do you have any tips for writers out there on how they can add in some of that more magical, realistic layering into their stories? I'm a big subscriber to the school of, if you tie your fantastical elements back to reality, it's less labor to imagine that. And there is a reason why these witches live in a world which is almost identical to ours. They live in houses like our houses. They eat the same food as us. They wear the same clothes as us. And that's not to say anything disparaging about authors who choose to set their novels in entirely fantastical worlds. But for me as a consumer, the kind of fantasy that I like is where it is recognizable as our world, but in some way different. And so I, I love Lee Bardugo's Grisha novels, which mm -hmm. feel tied to a world I recognize. I think Game of Thrones was vaguely tied to, I think, British and Celtic history. So it was somewhat recognizable to things that I knew. And so I think that's the way I choose to do it. I'm not a big fan of writing pages and pages of description, I must admit. I think for me, it's about just the little tiny delicious details. For example, in the passage that I read earlier, it's the fact that they're falling out about Stephen Gailey from Boyzard. <laughs> It's a real boy band. He was a real member of that boy band. And sure enough, 10 years later, he turned out to be gay. That's just a little lovely flavor for the reader, which if you don't know, it's fine. But I, I'm a big believer in don't get bogged down with tiny little details. We don't need to know when Neve bought her toaster. 
But it is encouraging that on a night out when she's gotten really drunk, she goes home and makes toast. Because to me, even though she's a witch, she feels more like a real witch if when she gets drunk, she goes home and has toast. Oh my gosh. When you were talking about toast, my dog just came over and it was leaning into me. She's like, oh, I love this into the toast. <laughs> More toast, please. This is so funny. So speaking of your details, I get obsessed. And do you mind if I just read a paragraph? Mm-hmm. Please do. And I wish I had a better voice after hearing all your lovely, <laughs> right? British accent. Her sister was thinner than she'd ever seen her, gaunt and hollow-cheeked. Her jet black eyes sunken in her skull. There was a sickness to her, her head lolling side to side on her toothpick neck. Her nails were long and yellowed with nicotine. When I read that, I was like, it's so amazing how you're creating the diversion between characters and health and foreshadowing. I'm not going to, of course, tell any of the secrets, but your ability to stack details where each detail meant something clear and precise. So can you tell us if that comes out in the drafting process or is that something that you just naturally there with? Now, this won't come as a surprise to probably somebody who also teaches screenwriting, but my very first draft tend to be a bit script-like. I'm a big believer in just get to the end. Just don't go back, don't mull, do not get caught in that quicksand. And I think you can, I think, especially in first chapter, I know a lot of writers who have been writing that chapter one for a long time. My first drafts are all about forward momentum. And when I go back and read them, there are some chapters which are almost just conversations between the characters. Then I tend to go back on the second draft and add those kind of, I call it arrange the throw pillars, you know, go back and put in the depth and the color and way more description. And that's how I tend to redraft. But I've got a feeling when it comes to things like character descriptions, for example, that's the first time we really see Kara. I, even as a very young child, hated it. I must admit, if the author didn't tell me what the character looked like, because again, how am I meant to picture them? If you're not going to tell me, is she tall or short? Is she red hair, blonde hair, dark hair? You're going to need to tell me because it used to really cheese me off. If I pictured a character somehow, some kind of way, three chapters, and then three chapters later, they're like, she took off her glasses. I'm like, you never told me she had glasses. That really used to bug me. So specifically, that kind of description was probably in the first draft. That is absolutely amazing. I think of it, and let me know if I'm off center here. But it sounds like you kind of take it from a like anatomical standpoint. It's like, okay, these are the bones of the story. This is like the structure. And then you go back and like you have the tendons and the muscle and then you package it all up in the skin. So it takes a journey. And so you're more focused on just like getting it out at the beginning. And then you go back and fix it and make it make sense, make it flow a little bit better. Add in some of those details and make sure that you're not like dropping any red herrings and not picking it back up and connect the dots kind of in a way. I'm sure this is true of anyone listening, which is you get to know your characters better. The more time you spend with them, you're all of a sudden those things that you wrote three months ago, you're like, I'm not sure she would have said that. Knowing her like I know her now, that doesn't ring true. And so very often when I get to the end of a draft, I almost immediately know you're going to have to go back and change an L, particularly in this novel, the housewife character. 
she became so much funnier and richer the more I wrote her and how much she celebrates the details of her life. She loves her Jermalan candle. She loves, in the second book, you realize there is a slogan in every room of her house painted onto the wall. She loves all those little things. She's very house proud. And that all came later. So there is a necessity to go back and revisit, especially the earlier stuff. But I think as well as an author, I always reserve the right to do whatever I want and go where the mood takes me. And there were parts of this novel that were never in the plan, but I did think, oh, that's interesting. Like the character where Leonie goes to see Madame Celestine, for example. So we learn as well as the four official types of witch as registered by Her Majesty's Royal Coven. There is a fifth type of witch that nobody talks about, the necromancer. And so Leonie goes to see like an illegal necromancer. That came out of nowhere. That was never in the plan. And I loved Madame Celestine so much. She comes back in book two and book three. And that was never meant to happen. So I think being open and sometimes letting the story lead you astray is a good thing. But don't let it lead you too astray. That makes sense. There was a character that I wanted to shake in the story. It was Elle. I was like, no, be more like the other ones. Why are you like this? Oh, my God. I wanted to shake her. I wanted her to be more like her daughter, honestly. (laughs) Elle was going to go on a big old journey. And like you said, I always knew this was a trilogy. And this is just the first step along what's going to be a very long road. And obviously, I knew from the beginning where Elle's going. And there's so much to look forward to in it. And I think all of my novels, my young adult novels, my adult stuff, transformation is really key. And I think Mm -hmm. as a trans person, I know why. The overarching theme has always been transformation. The character at the end of the book is never the same person as at the beginning. And I think when I underwent my own transition in 2012, that answered a lot of my own questions about why transformation is such such a theme in all of my work. That's a question I had coming up, actually. I was so taken by this transformation scene. I took a picture of it. I read it three or four times. And I, as a teacher who's taught a lot of trans students and supporting them and their art, and I wanted to really elevate voices. I just felt like it was so beautifully done in a way that we all could take in and be with the character with that kind of reveal. And I just was thinking, I always want to represent different people in my books, but I don't think I would have dared to write that because I would afraid I would get it wrong because I don't have that personal experience. So can you give us just some thoughts as a writer, how we could support and be there in our arts via the trans community? Well, I mean, that, that was something that I had to contend with in deciding whether or not to include the character of Leonie, who is a mixed race woman. I thought really long and hard, and especially coming from a YA background, where we've been talking about the importance of elevating our voices and bringing in marginalized writers throughout. But then I thought, what is this novel about? This novel is about womanhood. Who gets to be a woman? Who gets to call themselves a woman? And who gets to set the boundaries of womanhood? Who gets to gate? what it is to be a woman. And so if I was to exclude a Black woman from that conversation, that felt really cowardly. And that felt like it was saying something almost louder than including her. To exclude Leonie and say, I'm worried about being criticized, so I'm just not going to talk about race, felt like the ultimate in white feminism. Like, I'm going to let somebody else have that conversation, actually, though. Felt damaging and it felt wrong. 
And I also brought myself back to what would you say to a writer who wanted to include a trans character? And I would say, please do. And I don't want to shoulder the whole responsibility for the trans community because surprise, there is no such thing as a trans community. There is no one monolithic trans experience. I am a privileged white middle-class woman from England. I grew up in poverty, but I don't live in poverty now. I do not speak for the trans people. There is no the trans people. I cannot speak on the experience of a disabled trans person. I cannot speak on the experience of a Polish trans person. So I'm always like, please do, because actually I am a human person. And and when it came to Leonie, I said, well, let's start with the things you have in common. (laughs) So Leonie and I both grew up on housing projects. She was shipped off to the coven when she was nine. I was shipped off to an all boys grammar school when I was nine. (laughs) We both had that experience, that sense of being a fish out of water and being sent to somewhere where we were forced to assimilate uncomfortably and painfully. I was forced to pretend to be a boy. And basically, Leonie was forced to pretend she was white to fit in with the other girls in the coven. And so I used that experience to try and tell a story that hopefully would ring true. But of course, that could only take me so far. And so at that point, I had to speak to my Black and Mixed Race friends. I'm very lucky that In the UK and in the US, I had editors who were both women of colour. And then we brought on two sensitivity readers as well. Because to my mind, an editor is a paid reader. Why wouldn't you listen to them? You know, if you're not going to listen, you do that at your own risk. And of course, again, coming from a young adult background where the use of sensitivity readers is quite half the course now, (laughs) it wasn't an alien experience. And I welcomed that. I will say I'm proud, I think, of the finished result. And that this is a book that explores the different ways it is to be a woman. Yeah. Leonie's experience of womanhood is different to Neves. Neves is different to Helen is different to Els is different to Theo's. But I think the message of the book is about coalition. And you don't have to agree with every woman on earth. You don't have to like every woman on earth. You don't have to be friends with every woman on earth, but we all have to work together because we are all being oppressed by something bigger than woman. And that is patriarchy. And that that, really is what the whole trilogy is working towards. And that's exactly what I got from it. The spectrum of womanhood. It was just so beautiful as it's wrapped in the story where there's all these other things going. And I just appreciate all the different points of views that you brought up within this story. And I think it's just a great study of character and super excited for you. It's great. Thank you very much. Yeah. Speaking to people, it seems that the message is getting through. Sometimes you're going to be like, gosh, but if people just don't get it, like if people come up to say, oh, I really love how your book was about the Irish potato famine and you're but actually, it feels like the things that I meant to say, people seem to be catching the allegory. I would say too that that when I caught things and I wondered about things, there was a payoff. I felt like there was definitely, as a reader, I'm always seeking and then I'm looking for that payoff. And I think that is what you did really well. So tell us, what do you do when you're not working? I just work all the time. I'm such a workaholic. It's a problem. I need to switch off more. And I was very excited when the world 
did start to reopen a little bit. I relied on my friend for my sanity. And my life has changed a lot in the last decade. And now my life looks very different. And to an outsider now, I'm by and large in my day-to-day life, people read me as being cis. They're not, you know, necessarily reading me as trans when I'm out and about. I'm married to a cisgender man. I've got my little dog. I've got my house. (laughs) My life looks really different now. But before that, before my life has settled into this kind of quite heteronormative looking tablet. Before that, I had my queer family. I was running a cabaret night in Brighton. I was performing in cabaret and seeing my friends constantly. This isn't to criticize my family, but you know, I did leave home at 18 and I never went back because I didn't feel that sense of kinship with the family that I was born into. And it was when I moved to Brighton in my early 20s that I really found my people. I found my tribe. And and then when that tribe was taken away from me in the pandemic, I felt a little bereft. So now when I'm not working, I'm just seeing my friends. I'm drinking a lot of coffee. I'm drinking a lot of cocktails. I'm eating in restaurants. I am eating food I have not cooked, which is something I desperately missed in 2020 and 2021. So I'm just so amazing. Yeah, I'm just happy to have my friends isn't it isn't it interesting how like a cup of coffee at a coffee shop can what? do you know what this is a true story in peak 2020 when we allowed to leave the house but nothing was really open my mother-in-law was like i have found a coffee shop there is a coffee brewery about half an hour from where you live and there is a hatch in the side of the brewery that will serve you a takeaway coffee and we drove down And it was a hot day and they gave me a caramel iced milk latte and I cried because it was like a tiny glimmer of the life that we'd lost. And this like 16 year old girl having to sell a coffee to a crying woman who was like, like, calm down, love, just a coffee. And I was like, no, it's not a coffee. (laughs) It's the first green shoot that normality might one day return. It was, yeah, the caramel latte that could. Oh my gosh, the caramel latte. <laughs> that is amazing. When you think of what some of the answers to that may have been when it comes to what do you do when you're not working to now, like, we're not really over the pandemic, but closer. It's more like, I'm just happy to go outside and actually see people. Does grocery shopping count? Because I'm happy that I can do that now. Right. Yeah. So yeah, that totally makes sense. But I wanted to quickly circle back to when you were talking about including Leonie into the story and how much I really appreciated that. I feel like Honestly, when I started reading the story at first, I honestly thought all of them except for Helena was Black at first because of just the way the characters were. I had to circle back when I realized, okay, this is not in America. And so the way in which the characters behave and some of their mannerisms echo some of my community's expressions and the way we behave as a Black woman. So it was, oh no, wait, you have to separate the two. It's not all of them. It's just this one. But I felt so much more connected to the characters because of that, even if just in their mannerisms and the way they were, even if they weren't all Black women. Uh And so I was taken aback by that, but also maybe feel a bit of a kinship to them in a deeper way. 
And that probably speaks very highly of actually the contribution to the queer community from the Black Mm -hmm. community, which we know now so much of the conversations that I have with my friends evolved from that ballroom scene in New York in the 80s and 90s. A lot of the things we say, you know, we mainline RuPaul's Drag Race, and especially when I'm with my gay male friends, so much of our vocabulary and so much of our dialogue to queer Black people. At the very least, we have to acknowledge that, if nothing else. Absolutely. Absolutely. I just really appreciated that. They felt like people I knew because of that. And oh, that, that was a lot for me. Good. I'm, thank you. Yes. Thank you. That's made by death. <laughs> We're starstruck by you in so many different ways. <laughs> I mean, I'm like, yeah, you, please. I, 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 I've researched you, do you know? <laughs> you're such a triple threat. So you're an actor, you're a writer, you're an activist. And then I was actually looking at your Instagram and I was like, is Lady Whistledown the narrator of your audiobook? Yes. Although, no, this is where it gets complicated. So, yes, Lady Whistledown, Nicola Coughlin from Derry Girls in Bridgerton is doing the UK edition of the audiobook. So actually she hasn't finished. She still has to come back and do another two days of recording because in the UK, the book doesn't come out till July. So in order to have the audiobook ready for the American market, we've approached Aoife McMahon. And Aoife is an amazing narrator. She's done all the Sally Rooney books. Oh if you've ever heard an Irish narrator on a podcast, there is every possibility of Aoife's voice. And so actually, I consider myself so incredibly lucky to have two incredibly talented actors voicing this book. And so whether you're listening to Aoife McMahon's or Nicola Coughlin's, they are both chef's kids, I promise. I've read your book and I want to listen to your book in the accent. <laughs> right? I think it's really immersive when you hear it in the accent of the writer. And I really appreciated as a read aloud, your ability to write dialogue with a slang and make it totally smooth for my ear. Mm-hmm. Um, Egypt. Every time you were, I was like, oh gosh, I want to use that word. Why don't I use that word in my regular life? Habit, not really my word either. My grandfather was Irish and my agent is Irish. But it was, again, that knowledge Irish people experienced oppression. That was another way of exploring oppression. But I will say, listening to Nicola, I went to see Nicola doing the first three recording days. And to hear her do the voices blew my mind. Like Nicola Coughlin doing Leonie's Yorkshire accent. It's flawless. The woman is a witch. Because if you think she's done English for Bridgerton character, she's done Northern Irish for Derry Girls, even though she's from the Republic of Ireland. She is truly a gifted actor. So she does Neve in her own accent. She does this very posh, very polished accent for Helena. Then she does Yorkshire accent for Leonie. And then a completely different Yorkshire accent for Elle. So it's quite remarkable. That is amazing. It is. It is amazing. It is absolutely amazing because I didn't know who she was at first. And then I saw Derby Girls. I'm like, oh, Claire. Oh, my God. It's Claire. It's we lesbian. Oh, we lesbian. There we go. Yeah. I love that show so much. Like, it is amazing. And so the fact that Claire is going to be doing it, I don't want the American version. I want the UK version so I can hear her. They'll be with Read but the the, book. Aoife does all the voices well. Aoife does all the voices too. I've not heard Aoife's version yet, but I know because 
the studio asked me what voices she should do. So Aoife has done the voices as well. Obviously with Neve being the most prominent character, it made mm-hmm. sense to get an Irish reader. Can you tell us your number one tip for writers? Oh my gosh. So when I've worked with an amazing charity in the UK called First Story, which sent me into strange bits, but underprivileged schools, which is a loaded phrase. But I used to go into schools in London and work with writers groups. A lot of the mission was getting them to recognize that their experience, their lived experience was as valid as mine or as Margaret Atwood or as any of the other sort of writers that they were loving, Suzanne Collins or Mallory Blackman or whoever it was. They felt, when I would read their writing, it always felt like, you know, this is what a book has to sound like. And I was like, no, a book can sound like you. The first session, I would always ask them this bizarre list of questions. I would ask them like 50 questions. If you were a type of weather, what type of weather would you be? If you were a flavor of crisp, what flavor of crisp would you be? That's a potato chip, American. Where's the best takeaway on your street? What would your death row meal be? You know, all these kind of really strange probing questions. What did you learn from your parents? What did your parents learn from you? And by the end of it, they would have this big, long piece of paper with 50 weird answers on. And I was like, right, that's your story. That's the story I want to hear. Because actually, you don't need to write about Buffy the Vampire Slayer. You don't need to write a Katniss Everdeen. I want to read about you because what you've just told me there through all those details, it's your story. And yeah, sure, maybe you'll create character and give them a different name, but it's those things that are going to make your character feel real. I tried to do that now when I'm creating a character like me. I'm like, what type of weather is, you know, it helps me to make characters feel fully formed. Thank you for that. That's just great advice. We always like to give away a book at our podcast, and we ask that our guests choose a code word. There's a code word that you would like to give our listeners, the first person that emails us the code word at academy at manuscriptwishlist.com. We will send out a book. So what's the code word, Juno? Oh my gosh. The code word is Yorkshire. Yorkshire. Awesome. Thank you so much. This was lovely. We are so excited to see where this book goes and and just so thrilled that we got to talk to you today. Thank you very much for having me along. It's been really fun. Thank you. We are so glad that you joined us. And as always, we appreciate your feedback. Just head on over to the iTunes store and let us know what you think. It not only helps us make this podcast be the best it can be, but it also affects our ratings within the iTunes platform. We'd love to hear from you. If you're feeling brave and want to submit your page for our first pages podcast, you can send it to academy at manuscriptwishlist.com with first pages podcast in the subject line. We'd also just love to hear from you. And if you'd like to learn more about the Manuscript Academy and everything we have to offer, just jump on over to manuscriptacademy.com.